Welcome to New Hope and the teaching ministry of Pastor Randy Rainwater. We are the top 1% of the whole world combined. Let's not forget what the Lord has given us and let's not neglect Him in our prosperity. Grace New Hope Executive Director Shiva Saja brings today's message from the New Testament book of Acts. It's part of our Dream Again series. Here's Shiva. Good morning and welcome. It's a great day to be in the house of the Lord. Come on. I want to start off this morning. First of all, I'm just so grateful. Through an echo. I'm just so grateful for the fact that I have the opportunity to share the message this morning. And I wanna start off with a question. How many of you guys have been named after maybe a person or have a name that has deep meaning or a story behind it? Okay, cool, I'm sorry for the rest of y'all. But <laughs> a lot of people think that my name, Sheba, is actually an Indian name but it's not, it's actually a biblical name. And growing up, people would associate me with the Queen of Sheba. I, I specifically remember my third grade teacher, like every single day she would call me Queen Sheba. So I thought I was some sort of royalty. Yes, you can call me your highness. But then, funny thing is, I started learning grammar and then I realized, oh, there's a preposition between Queen and Sheba. So it's the queen of Sheba. That doesn't mean I'm a queen, that means I'm a piece of land. And when I realized that, I was like, wow, that makes such a huge difference. But the name Sheba is actually the Hebrew word for seven, which means oath or promise. And the crazy thing is, this morning, Judy Eagleson comes up to me and she was like, I heard something about your name in something I was listening to and it means seven. I was like, is this confirmation? The Lord must want me to talk about this this morning. I just think that is so amazing. But all throughout scripture, what we see is that names are so important. And when people have like these divine encounters with God, God oftentimes changes their names. So let's look at Abram. From Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, Jacob to Israel, which is the land of Israel is named after him. Saul to Paul. And there's a character, as we look through the book of Acts and are studying it, there's a name that appears over and over and over again. And his name is Peter. That's who he, that's who we know him as, Peter. But Peter's birth name was actually Simon. And when Jesus met Simon for the first time, he looked him up and down and said, you don't look like a Simon. You ever do that to people? Like, okay, that name doesn't fit you. You look like this other person. Your name should be Cephas. So Jesus renames Peter to be Cephas, which means rock. And then when it's trans, sorry, renamed Simon to be Cephas. And then when Cephas is translated to Greek, it's Petros, and that's where we get the name Peter from. But if you look at Peter's life, was he actually a rock? And I'm gonna get into that a minute because in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says to Peter, now I say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, play on words right here, upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. 
Let's take a look at Peter's life, especially when he started following Jesus at the beginning. What is he known for? Fishing. He's known for denying Jesus three times. Three times. So he was the rock in all the worst ways. I mean, when Jesus told him to pray, he slept like a rock, right? When Jesus said, walk on water, he took his eyes off Jesus and he sank like a rock. He hit rock bottom by denying Jesus three times. He was the rock in all the worst ways possible. But what gives me hope this morning is that the day that Jesus met him, he gave him a new name. It wasn't who he was right now, but who he would become. Jesus saw greater potential in Peter um, from who he is now to who he would become. There would be a day, there would be a day that Peter would be the rock that the church is going to be built on. If that doesn't give you hope this morning, I don't know what will. You know why? Because, sorry, you know why? Because some of us in here this morning, you know, you may feel really like I'm the worst sinner or can God do anything with my life? Do I have any potential? What can God do with my life? I, I can't change, I, I can't be transformed and you're believing these lies of the enemy and I just wanna tell you that Jesus has given you a new name. He calls you chosen, he calls you redeemed, he calls you saved. And you may see who you are right now and get disappointed, but God sees who you are becoming. With God, a life surrendered, he can transform it. He can do so many things with your life, more than you can dream or imagine of doing on your own. And let me tell you, we see this dramatic transformation that happens in Peter's life in the book of Acts. And I wanna show it to you. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts chapter four. And as you're doing that, I wanna kinda take you back in your memory. You remember when Jesus was being crucified and Peter's watching and a young servant girl comes up to him and says, you were with Jesus, weren't you? You look like a Galilean. Weren't you one of his followers? And Peter is trembling. He's so scared that he says, I don't even know who Jesus is. What are you talking about? He did not want to be identified with Christ. But now in Acts chapter four, Peter and John are arrested and they're thrown into jail. And the next day there's a hearing. And get this, I want you guys to remember this because in verse 13 of chapter four, it says the members of the council. So now they're standing in front of the same people that had condemned Jesus to death, Peter and John. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. They recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. You see that dramatic transformation? He is no longer afraid, no longer scared to be identified as a follower of Jesus, to have been with Jesus. You see, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, he transforms Peter and empowers him to start living up to his God-given name. That's what Christ can do through you. 
wherever you are at right now, whatever situation that you're going through, God calls you chosen, he calls you redeemed, he calls you his son and daughter, and he will transform you to be, to be able to live up to that name, amen. And we see, again, in the book of Acts, that on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches his first sermon, and the church is born, because 3,000 people give their lives to Christ. 3,000 people start following Jesus. So it's true, yes, the church was built upon the rock. And Peter becomes the father of the early church. I just wonder though, how was Peter able to speak to all those people? They didn't have buildings like we had right now. They didn't have microphones. Like how was he able to project his voice to 3,000 people? I don't know. But it just reminds me that the church is not a building. We are the church to this broken world. We are the church. So this morning, I wanna take a look into what is the church? Look at the early church. What were they characterized by? What does this new transformed community look like? Because there was something so attractive about them. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people were being saved every single day. Why? They didn't have buildings. I think about Cambodia. When we go, there are people that, there are congregations that meet under a tree, even just around the world, under trees, under tents, in homes. And then when they become persecuted, they have to meet secretly in homes. So what makes the church so attractive that people want to follow, follow them? So that's what I'm gonna, I'm gonna look at this morning. What are the characteristics or marks of a transformed community? The first point is a transformed community is marked with boldness to share faith. A transformed community is marked with boldness to share faith. And as I said earlier, Peter and John had been thrown into prison and they're released, but they're threatened. They said, don't ever talk about Jesus again. And after they're released, they go back to the rest of the disciples and they share their experience. And I love, what, I love what all the other believers did. It says in chapter four, verse 24 of Acts, when they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer. So first of all, they were united, they were together, and prayer was their first response. And what did they pray? Well, if you can hop down to verse 29 for me, this is part of their prayer. And now, O Lord, Hear their threats and give us great boldness in preaching your word. What's our first response when we go through hard things? When we go through trials or challenges, what do we do first? What do we cry out to God for? Usually it's, God, get me out of this, right? This is too hard for me. Either change the situation or get me out of this right now. But what amazes me is that the believers don't pray for an escape. That's what we oftentimes pray for, an escape. But they don't pray for an escape, they pray for boldness to endure, boldness to walk by faith, boldness to preach the gospel in the face of persecution. I mean, some of them, this was just the birth of the church, so some of them were being stoned, some of them were being killed, some of them had to flee for their lives. But in spite of the opposition, the church continues to grow. 
because of that boldness. They weren't afraid. And I just wanna tell you, don't be afraid. I think fear is the thing that hinders us from sharing the gospel, sharing our stories. We don't have to be afraid of persecution as the, the world is getting more and more hostile to, to Christianity, to our beliefs and to our values. We don't have to be afraid of cancel culture. We don't have to be afraid of name calling. We have to be bold in sharing our faith, bold in talking about who Jesus is and how he has changed our lives. This past week, I was driving home from work and as I was like crossing an intersection, there were a couple people holding signs and some of the signs read, I think they were like evangelists or something. Some of the signs read, Jesus is coming back. And another sign read, um, repent of your sins. The one that stood out to me though was a sign that said, hell is real. And it stood out to me because, you know, the guy who was holding it was just like dancing around and he was waving at people and he was like smiling and like thumbs up guys. And I was just like, I don't, he's probably just trying to like get people's attention. I don't think he had any bad motives, but it just seemed very odd. Like you are awfully happy to be holding a sign about hell. Come on. D.L. Moody says, I must not preach hell unless I preach it with tears. Like when we think about the destiny of those who don't know who Jesus is, it should compel us to action, compel us to share the word of God with them. And it should create a sense of urgency within us. Like, oh my gosh, hit the floor with, on my knees, weeping out to God for their salvation, for them to know who Jesus really is. So what are some things that you can do? How can you grow in boldness in sharing your faith? Well, I wanna give you some practical things to do. The first thing is pray for people. Like how often do we just think about our circle? How often do we make a list and just say, okay, these are the people that don't follow Jesus. I wanna dedicate a day of the week to pray for them. On Mondays, every single Monday, I'm gonna pull out this list and I'm gonna pray for those people. And I wanna say, some of you guys are doing that. Don't give up, don't give up. I have an aunt who prayed for her husband for 30 years to be a follower of Jesus. And a couple years ago, I would say maybe three years ago, I got to witness his baptism. And it was just the most beautiful thing that she didn't give up, one, that she persisted and we finally got to see God do something incredible in his life. So do not give up. And the second thing I would say is, Share your story. When we see Paul's life being transformed, he went from Saul to Paul. He went from a persecutor of believers, of Christians, to one who now shared the faith. Everywhere he went, he just shared his story. He said, man, I'm not who I used to be. Look who God transformed me to be. That's what people in the world want. They want that peace, they want that joy. They want that unity that the Lord brings. They want that transformation for themselves. So when we share our stories, it brings people hope. So, so share your story. And the last thing I wanna say, something practical, is ask the Holy Spirit for boldness. 
How often do we pray for God? How often do we pray to God asking him for boldness? Like, God, give me, like, I'm scared. Honestly, this is something I've had to really work on because growing up, my parents, like, my dad would go out evangelizing and he would go and share the gospel and he would say, do you want to come with me? And I'd be like, no, not at all. It's terrifying. I don't want to, I don't want to talk to people, strangers about Jesus. I don't want them to call me weird or crazy or a Jesus freak, whatever it is. But then I was like, Lord, I want to be bold for sharing the word of God to people. Please give me that boldness. Highlight people in me that are searching for truth. Highlight people who are searching for truth so that I can go and share, bring them into my path. So this is my first point. As I close off the first point, a transformed community should be marked with boldness to share faith. And my second point as I go into that is in the following passage in Acts chapter four, verses 32 through 37. All the believers were united in heart and mind. You see, there's a level of unity that's going on. And I want you to underline that. United in heart and mind, because I'm gonna come back to it. And they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. So there was this understanding that, okay, God's the source of all of my blessings. So if everything belongs to God, then we're just merely stewards. We're simply stewards of what God has blessed us with. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. Not only are they sharing the gospel, they're sharing their faith, but they're also sharing their possessions. And because those two things are combined, it says God's great favor, God's blessing was upon them. There was no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. So there's this transformation that happens among the believers from wanting more to sharing more. This is my second point. A transformed community is marked by radical generosity. A transformed community is marked by radical generosity. And you know, it can be really tricky or just a sensitive topic to talk about generosity and money in the church. Especially because people think the church is a money-making machine. Like, they just want your money. Don't go to church. They just want your money. But I want to set the record straight for you this morning. Because as I've been reading a book on generosity and doing some research, this statistic just shows up over and over and over again. And it's really startling, actually. So listen to this. Only 5% of the U.S. tithes. That means one out of 20 people with 80% of Americans giving only 2% of their income. But this is the part that is actually really startling. While during the Great Depression, they gave it a rate of 3.3%. Isn't that crazy that during the Great Depression, one of the the worst periods in, in American history where there was extreme poverty and starvation and homelessness, People were more generous at that time, giving at a rate higher than they are now, today, in our excess, in our plenty. 
it just reminds me that when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land, before they ever stepped foot into the promised land, he gives them a warning. That warning is, don't forget me in your plenty. Don't neglect me in your prosperity. Remember me because I am the source of your success. I am the, I am the one who gave you all of this stuff. So don't forget me. And, and this is such a, a warning even for us as believers. Let's not forget the Lord. Like we have everything that we need, that we want, that we can think of. We are the top 1% of the whole world combined. Let's not forget what the Lord has given us and let's not neglect him in our prosperity, that we always keep him first, that we always love him, that we always honor him, not only with our, our time, our resources, but also with our generosity. Amen. We ought to be the most generous people on the planet. Does that not excite someone? I know. Sometimes generosity looks like a loss, but we ought to be the most generous people on the planet. Not stingy, but generous. And as a child, my parents taught me the importance of generosity. I had really good parents. My mom's here today. So thankful for that because she's been listening to this all weekend. <laughs> and they taught me about generosity by placing a couple dollars in mine and my brother's hands so that, we, so that we could take it into the offering plate and drop it in there. They taught me to treasure Christ above all else. And, and this is just such an important lesson even for parents that your kids are watching you. Your kids see how you worship. Your kids watch when you give. And they'll remember that. It doesn't seem like it's making a difference right now. But I remember that now that I'm older and I understand the meaning of it now more so then. But it was easy to give when it was their money. You know, it's your money, sure. It's fun, just drop it in the bucket. Then I started working at Chick-fil-A and making my own money. And my parents would say, don't forget, Sheba, 10% goes to the Lord. He will honor it. He will bless you for it. And it was just so hard for me to give. I was reluctant. I was not a cheerful giver, even though I did it. I mean, you had to drag me to the offering bucket. I was like, Lord, okay, here it is. Bye. <laughs> but that's because I always thought generosity was a loss. That means I would have less money for myself, duh until the Lord totally shifted my perspective on giving. Generosity is never a loss. You never lose when you give to God. It's an investment into the kingdom of God. And just like an investment has a return, there's a return. It may not be material blessings, but God will bless you just like, just like it says, because they were sharing their faith and sharing their possessions, the Lord's great favor was upon them. And there's this principle that I learned. I don't know if a lot of you have heard about tithing, but it's like giving 10% to the church so that the church can expand the mission of God that if you give 10%, you can do more with the 90% with God than 100% without God. I'm gonna say that again. You can do more with the 90% with God 
than 100% without God. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, it says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. If you think about it, does God really need our money? No, he doesn't. But it shows him that we value him, that we treasure him above everything. It shows him that, you know, he knows that money is the biggest competitor in our lives. He says you can't serve God and money, but you can serve the Lord and you show him that you trust in him and that nothing competes with him having priority in your life. Amen? Amen. Amen. If that doesn't just compel you to give, I don't know what will. Um, And this week, I spent some time just, you know, thinking about that, and this thought came to me that we have these big, grand dreams for our lives. We have these goals, like, man, yes, I can't wait that for one day to own a home. We have Pinterest boards with the dream wedding, the dream home, the forever home, right? Nicer cars, a great retirement. I mean, who doesn't want a great retirement? Who doesn't want all that stuff? But it just got me thinking, what does dream generosity look like? What are our goals for giving? Not just to the church, but also to those around us who don't have much. Because as we upgrade our living, we should be upgrading our giving. Amen. And I just began to like dream about this, like, oh my gosh, what if New Hope could, could commit more money, more resources than we've ever done before to missions, to expanding the ministries in our community? What would that look like? Because right now, we support the Lydia Project, the School of Discipleship, and the Jesus School in Cambodia. But I was like, hmm, let me dream a minute. What, how amazing would it be if we could support all the kids in the Sunrise Home so that we could take them through college that could totally transform their future? How amazing would it be if we can adopt a city in Haiti and say, we're gonna empower these women so that their lives can be forever changed. They don't have to beg people for money. They can make their own money for themselves to support their families. Come on, dream with me for a minute. What if we can expand our, our ministries to do more kids' life clubs in elementary schools, thrive clubs in middle schools for kids who have never stepped foot into the church to hear the gospel, to hear the stories of scripture so that they can remember it when they're older. Say, I remember my kid's life teacher teaching me this stuff. I remember her talking about God's love. What if, what if we can make a greater difference with our time, our talents, our generosity to expand the kingdom of God, not just to accumulate stuff for ourselves, but to make a difference around the world and also locally. That's what we're called to do. Amen, to live on mission. So that's my second point, that we ought to be the most generous people on the face of the earth. And we're given an example of a man who was very generous in the next verse, in chapter four, verse 36. For instance, there was a man named Joseph. The apostles nicknamed him Barnabas. See, once again, that change in names. And Barnabas means 
son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. But then we're given a very contrasting story of a couple who did not do it right. This is probably my least favorite passage in all of scripture, because you know, once you read it, face value, it doesn't make sense. Their names are Ananias and Sapphira. So I'm gonna read the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And I wanna tell you, it's not a very pleasant story. It's quite disturbing, actually. So in chapter five, verses one through five, it says, but there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife, Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell, as you wished. You could have done whatever you wanted to with it. And after selling, the money was yours to give away. How could you do such a thing like this? You are not lying to us, but to God. You see, too often we think, oh, we get scared of people finding out about what we've done. But what's more terrifying is when God, God knows, God finds out and God exposes it. And that's what happens. It says, as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Of course, I mean, if somebody just dropped dead, that is absolutely horrifying. And, you know, I don't know what your emotions are as you're hearing this story or reading it, but I oftentimes wanted to avoid this story or just skip over it because the punishment seemed so severe. God, why is this in the Bible? This is absolutely crazy. Like how many times have I sinned? I should have dropped dead about 20 times, maybe 300, right? I, like, doesn't make sense. But as I began to like look into this passage and read it and think about it in, in comparison with the rest of the text around it, something became very clear to me. And I wanna point that out to you. So I'm gonna read a couple verses and I want you to think about what theme keeps reappearing in these. Acts chapter 1, 14, they were constantly united in prayer. Acts 2, 1, they were all with one accord in one place. Acts 2, 46, with one accord they continue to meet daily. Acts 4, 32, all the believers were united in heart and mind. What's the theme that just keeps showing up over and over and over again? Exactly, unity, over and over and over and over in the book of Acts, God was able to do amazing, powerful things because the church was united and it repeatedly uses one in heart, gathered together with one accord, unified in mission and purpose. And that's why the Holy Spirit was able to do amazing, powerful things through them because they were unified. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira was not that they kept some money to themselves. It was actually that they were dis, they, sorry. It was actually that 
they actually were hindering the work of the Spirit by disrupting the unity. It was not that they had kept the money to themselves, but they were disrupting the unity of the church, which would thereby hinder the work of the Holy Spirit. There are many things in our church, in the church around the world, that endanger the unity of the church. For them, it was hypocrisy. They had an image of oneness, but not the reality of it. Hypocrisy is having the image of spirituality without the reality of a spiritual life. There are many things that endanger the unity of the church. It could be gossip. It could be division, jealousy. The list goes on. But what it shows us is the extreme severity of the punishment, God takes a lack of unity very seriously because the world is watching. The world wants to see what the church is like. In Matthew, Jesus says, a house divided against itself cannot stand, it will fall. Unity is so important in the church, especially in our times. I mean, the world is watching. The world is watching us. That should just like shake us to the core. It's not just for ourselves, but people around us are watching our unity. Is there division? Are we faking it anywhere and, and, sh- and seeming like we have that, that image of spirituality, but not actually living out the gospel, not having pure motives, that reality of a spiritual life? And I wanna close with this story so the band can come up. There was, in, Af- in South Africa, during the apartheid, there was a young man, his name was Mahatma Gandhi, And he was actually a law student in South Africa. But while he was there, he was introduced to like the gospel. He was introduced to Christianity and he really admired Jesus, especially because Jesus, in a sense, like he he practiced the philosophy of nonviolence. And Mahatma Gandhi studied the Bible and he admired Jesus. He was intrigued by Christianity. So one day he decided to go visit a church. He's like, I wanna learn more about Jesus. And as he walked up the stairs to go to a church service, an elder of the church stops him and says, what are you doing? You can't come in here. Remember I said the apartheid was going on in Africa right now. So there was segregation happening within the church. So Mahatma Gandhi was removed from church because of the skin, because of the color of his skin. That just shaped his understanding of Christianity. That shaped his understanding of what Christians are like. And that was his only interaction. But that totally shaped his understanding of the faith. And Mahatma Gandhi was actually a a really close friend with a missionary named E. Stanley Jones. And E. Stanley Joan records this conversation he had with Gandhi. He asks Gandhi, Mr. Gandhi, though you quote the words of Christ often, why is it that you appear to so adamantly reject becoming his follower? And Gandhi replied, oh, I don't reject your Christ. I love your Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike Christ. 
What if that story was different? What if he had been invited? Like I think about what could have happened. How many people in India could have come to know Jesus through Gandhi if he had a different experience with believers, with the church? And I'm not saying this to to throw stones or in order to like create judgment in your hearts and say, oh, look at y'all, do better. But I'm saying this because you know what? In the New Testament church, there was tremendous growth. It was growing exponentially. Every day, thousands of people were being added. But what we see now is the opposite happening. Every week, 60 churches close their doors. In 2019, there were fewer, there were um, more churches that closed than that had opened. And what this tells me is as the church, the numbers of, of people who truly follow Jesus is in a sense decreasing as churches are closing. The only glimpse of Christ that somebody in the world has is probably you and I. Think about your coworkers, think about those around you, think about people in your schools and your soccer team, whatever it is, we are called to be the church. The only taste of Christianity that someone may have, numbers say that by 2050, only 10% of the population will be church attenders. If that doesn't wake us up, I don't know what will. Because we ought to be the church in the world. The, The believers of the New Testament, they didn't have a building but everywhere they went, they were bold about sharing their faith. They were generous with their possessions and their love for God. And they were unified. And because of that, they were so attractive. Thousands of people thronged to them. And we can do the same in our communities. We can do the same in our neighborhoods, in our schools, to say, I am the church. It's not a place that I go to. It's the person that I am. I am the, I am the temple of the, the Holy Spirit. He lives within me. So anytime I interact with a person, I wanna show them what Jesus is like. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your presence. Thank you, Lord God, for your goodness this morning. Thank you for people here who are bold about their faith, who constantly share wherever they go. And if there's anyone here that has fear in their hearts and and you've highlighted a person to them and you've been putting on their hearts to tell this person about you, but they're just scared, I pray for boldness to arise within them. Lord, I pray for generosity that our church would be known as the most giving church in Lawrenceville, Georgia. Lord, I pray for unity that we would not be divided by politics or by race or anything like that, but that we would reflect the kingdom of God, that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and that we would all be together unified for one purpose, to expand the kingdom. Lord, let your presence come. We need an outpouring of your spirit. All of this was initiated by your spirit. We just pray, Lord God, that as I shared your word, 
that people would take it home and to live it out for themselves and to read it for themselves and that it would transform lives just as it transformed Peter's life and so many people around the world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. I'm Myrna Brown.